Amen. Would you join with me in a prayer of supplication to this God? Father, this morning we have heard your word call us to worship you. We've responded with praise and with adoration. Lord, we've confessed our sins to you and thanked you for your grace in Christ. And Lord, now we come to your throne to boldly ask of you. Lord, we live in a broken and fallen world. Lord, we're reminded of that even, even now with the tension between Russia and Ukraine. Lord, we pray for peace in that area of the world. And Lord, we thank you that you provided peace by the blood of your son. And we thank you that even in this church, we have those from Russia and those from Ukraine who are united by the blood of Jesus Christ in the gospel. And so Lord, we ask that we here at Crabapple would be a supernatural display of the unity of the gospel. That we are a people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation who have been bought by Christ, who have been reconciled to you and reconciled to one another. So God, as we look at this picture of the early church in Acts chapter 2, Lord, give us a vision for what you desire your church to be. Let us get rid of our own preconceived notions about what we want the church to be and look at your design for the church and how we can fulfill that by following your instructions given to us in your word. God, bless this time together. Open up our eyes to see your truth. Let us go and, and live our lives changed because of that truth. It's in Christ that we pray. Amen. Amen. This morning we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And as we do so, we're going to see the simplicity of a spirit-empowered church. The simplicity of a spirit-empowered church. Then for the next four weeks, Pastor Jerry is going to walk us through our church covenant and we're going to see what it means to be covenanted together as a healthy local church. What makes a church healthy? What does it mean to be covenanted together? We're going to be seeing those in the next few weeks. And as we launch this morning, it's my privilege to walk us through this description of the first New Testament church, the church in Jerusalem. We're going to take a look at how this church was built and then apply it to our day. Ask the question, how do we build a healthy local church? And as we begin this morning, I want to give you two contrasting examples of building from my vast carpentry experience. Uh, and if you know me well, you'll know that well, that was funny. I don't have a whole lot of experience building things with my hands, uh, but I'm trying to learn. I, I want to learn. I want to be a manly man who knows how to build things with my hands. Uh, we recently took a disaster relief trip to New Orleans, and I told George, hey, you've got this group of skilled laborers. I'm not a skilled laborer, but I can be a laborer. And he said, that's good enough. So I don't have a whole lot of experience building things, but two projects that I've built recently are a chicken coop and a dining room table. A chicken coop and a dining room table. So let's start with the chicken coop. So during COVID, during the shutdown of 2020, we decided to get chickens. And when you have chickens, you can't keep them in your house. So you have to have somewhere to put them, right? A chicken coop. And so in preparing to build this chicken coop, I talked to my father-in-law, who was a contractor and a home builder by trade, and he was telling me all the things I need to do to build this chicken coop. He gave me precise instructions about measurements and materials and leveling and grading and all of these things. Let me ask you, do you think I followed all those precise instructions? Rick, sorry if you're watching this. I did not follow those instructions. I thought, this thing is for chickens, not me. I'm not going to be living here, right? This thing is going to get dirty and nasty. All I really care is that it works, right? That it stands up, that I can fill it with chickens, and that it looks pretty good, at least from the outside. I'm not really worried about meeting code or passing a building inspection, right? All right, that's the first example. The second example is a dining room table. Jackie, my bride, has been wanting a new table for a while. We're preparing to host this community group, and so we needed a bigger table. And so instead of going to buy one, I decided I'm going to build one. Like I said, I'm not a master carpenter, but thankfully I know one. So I called up Mike Wells, and he graciously agreed to help me build this table. And I had gotten precise instructions from my wife on exactly what kind of table she wanted, right? The style, the type of wood, the dimensions, the color, everything. So let me ask you the same question. 
Do you think I followed those precise instructions? You better believe I did. (laughs) So the first thing we did is go to the store to pick up those materials, and we don't go to the normal lumber section. We go to the specialty lumber section, which I didn't even know existed. And we pick out the best boards, and we're holding them up and carefully inspecting them to make sure that the boards aren't warped or bent and that there's no imperfections in the wood. And then we take the materials back to Mike's house and he's got all these specialty tools for this sort of project and he's teaching me how to do everything and I'm trying to follow his instructions as carefully as possible, right? I'm measuring twice, cutting once. He's teaching me how to, how to use this sander and he says, now you can really mess up the wood with this grit of sander, so make sure you take your time, don't rush it, be careful. And so, man, I was. It took me forever to just sand that one board, but I wanted to make sure it was, it was perfect, just smooth as glass. Why such a different approach? Why such a different approach? I think it's two main differences. Who it's for and what its use is. Who it's for and what its use is. All right, the chicken coop is for chickens. It's a place for them to be safe and to lay eggs. The dining room table is for my wife and my family and my community group. It's a place of fellowship and of love and of care. Much greater things are going to happen around that table than in the chicken coop, right? So that affects the care and concern with which I build it. Do Do you see where I'm going with this? If I treat the building of my dining room table with such care because of who it's for and what it's used for, how much more should we care about the building of the church? Who is the church for? God. What is the church used for? To be a display of God's glory on the earth, to be an embassy of the kingdom of God, to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. And God has given us precise instructions in his word on how he wants his church to be built. But let me ask you the same question. Do most churches in our culture today follow those instructions? Sadly, I don't think we do. We treat the building of the church kind of like how I built my chicken coop, right? We take these instructions as mere suggestions, and then we adopt pragmatism. We do what appears to work. We want it to stand up, fill it with people, and for it to look pretty good, at least from the outside. One author put it this way. God gave us his order for the church. He told us precisely what he wanted through his commandments in the Bible. In our arrogance, we created something we think works better. Rather than diligently studying his commands and delivering exactly what he asked for, we have been so influenced by so many other things. We think about what we want, what others would want, and what others are doing. In the spirit of Cain, we bring an offering we think he should accept rather than what he actually asked for. Ouch. So let's humble ourselves this morning before the word of God and let's see what God desires for his church. And as we do that, I want to keep two things in mind. First, as we talk about building a healthy church, we must remember that we don't actually build the church. Who does? God. God builds his church. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church. Psalm 127, verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, its builders strive in vain. So we must remember that God is the ultimate builder and he builds according to his instructions. We'll see, as our title suggests, that those instructions are pretty simple. But it is so tempting when we seem to think those instructions aren't working or seem to be moving too slowly for us to run ahead and try to help God out by adding our own ingenuity and innovation. God doesn't need our help. He will build his church. Second thing to keep in mind is as we look at this description of the first New Testament church, the church in Jerusalem, we must remember that the book of Acts is often descriptive, not prescriptive. And so just because it happened in the Jerusalem church, does that mean that we have to do it the exact same way? The answer to that question is no. Right? What we're looking for is positive commands and patterns. Is this commanded elsewhere in the New Testament? Is this a regular, consistent pattern of a New Testament church? So we're going to be looking for those two things in our time this morning in distinguishing from uh, descriptions and prescriptions. So with those two things in mind, let's jump into the text. 
Acts 2, 42 through 47. We're going to see, again, the simplicity of a spirit-empowered church. I have eight points for you this morning, and because I'm a Baptist, they all begin with S. And we're going to spend the bulk of our time on the first three S's, and then we'll go pretty quickly through the last five S's. So first S is the setting. Let's look at the setting. Let's back up a little bit to Acts chapter 1. We see the risen Christ appearing to the disciples for 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. And he tells them, wait in Jerusalem to receive the promised Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And with those final words, he ascends into heaven. And his followers in Jerusalem, about 120 people, gather together and they wait and they pray for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, we see the Holy Spirit come in power. It says, a sound came from heaven like a mighty rushing wind, and tongues as of fire appeared on each of them. And it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and immediately began to speak in different languages. And at this time, because of the Feast of Pentecost, there were Jews in Jerusalem from all different nations. And they all began to hear these, in, these Spirit-empowered believers speaking in their own languages. The text says they were amazed and perplexed, asking, what does this mean? And others mocked and said they must be filled with new wine. So Peter stands up, very first Christian sermon recorded, and he begins his sermon this way. These people aren't drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. And then he exposits Joel 2 and Psalm 16, and he boldly proclaims the gospel message of Jesus Christ. That this was the plan of God from all eternity to save a people for himself through the life and the death and the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. That Jesus was the promised Jewish Messiah who would save his people from their sins by dying on a cross and that he would reign forever as the resurrected king. That now he was exalted at the right hand of God the Father and he has poured out his Holy Spirit to empower his church to proclaim his gospel to the ends of the earth. And look at how Peter closes his sermon. Verse 36. Verse 36, Acts chapter 2. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And then how do the people respond? Verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? When the people were confronted with the reality of their sin, they wanted to know what they must do to be saved. They were cut to the heart. So I just want to pause right now at the very beginning of the sermon and ask this morning, have you realized the depths of your sin and your need of a Savior? I don't want to make any assumptions this morning. Just because you're in this room doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you grew up in church doesn't mean you're saved. There may be some of you in this room who, who know, who would admit, yeah, I'm not a Christian. It's my prayer that this morning, through his word, that you would be convicted of the reality of your sin, that you would know that you're a sinner deserving the wrath of God, and that you would, uh, that you would turn in, in faith to Jesus Christ, that you would realize that it was your sin that put Jesus on the cross, that just like Peter tells the, Jewish, the, Jewish, the, the Jews in Jerusalem, you crucified Jesus. He went to the cross because of your sin. Does that cut you to the heart? Does that make you cry out, what shall I do to be saved? If it does, and I hope it does, here's the answer. Verse 38, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and all who are far off everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So if you feel that conviction, repent. Turn away from your sin and in faith toward Jesus Christ on the cross. Look at him, crucified, buried, and resurrected. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. That promise is for you. The promise of the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so it's my prayer that, that you will believe in that promise, some of you today, for the first time today, 
That if you believe that you will then talk to someone about it, that you will talk to your parents about it, or maybe the friend who brought you, or maybe someone sitting around you, or you come and talk to one of the pastors. We'd love to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus and what the next steps are. And if we continue in the text, we see what the next steps are. So what are these people who believed? What happens next? Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. Praise the Lord. About 3,000 people heard the gospel message and received it. They believed it. They turned from their sins and put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. And then they were baptized. They made a public profession of their faith, and the church affirmed their profession through the sign and seal of water baptism. The act of being immersed in water is an outward sign of an inward reality. They had been buried with Christ in his death and raised to walk in newness of life. They were identifying with Christ in his body as new creations in Christ. And so we see, we see here that baptism is the first act of obedience for a believer. If you claim to be a believer but refuse to be baptized as a believer, you're living in disobedience to Christ's command. If you call yourself a Christian and haven't been baptized, just let me ask you what, are you, what are you waiting for? Come talk to one of us about baptism. We would love to hear the testimony of what God has done in your life by saving you. And if you've made a credible profession of faith, you're at the point in your life where you can make a credible profession of faith and you're living in accordance with that profession, we would love to talk to you more about what it means to be baptized and how you can follow Christ's command to be baptized. So these people believed, they were baptized, and then it says they were added. They were added. What does that mean, they were added? What were they added to? Does that just mean the universal invisible church look down at verse 47 verse 47 uses that same sort of language and it says added to their number added to their number so what number this is the number at the church in jerusalem a local visible church they knew who was in and they knew who was out there was a clearly defined church membership a number and the requirements for entrance into this church membership were belief in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and baptism. So we have to ask these questions. Remember, we're looking at descriptive and prescriptive. Are these three things, belief, baptism, and church membership, mere descriptions of the church in Jerusalem, or are they prescriptions for us to follow today? Remember, we're asking two questions. This, is this commanded elsewhere in Scripture, and is this the regular pattern of New Testament churches? The answer to both of those questions for all three of these things is yes. We can point to the places all over the New Testament where, where we see those things, but pretty simply we see them in the Great Commission, right? We know the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Jesus said to his disciples, go therefore and make disciples. Disciples are those who, who people who turn from their sin, believe and trust in Jesus Christ, belief. Make disciples of all nations, doing what? baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So we see pretty clearly there belief and baptism. And then the way those things are carried out, the rest of the New Testament is through local churches with clearly defined membership. We see it all through the book of Acts. And we see it in epistles who are which are named after the churches to which they were written. And these, these letters, these epistles, were written to, the, to, to local churches with a clearly defined membership. For example, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to the churches of Galatia, to the church of the Thessalonians, so on and so forth. Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about how local churches are one body with many members. That's where the language of membership comes from. We're members of the body together. We could also go to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, which says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And so these local churches, they're given leaders, they're given shepherds, they're given elders who much, must keep watch over the souls of their flock, and they're going to give an account. So how do we know who we will give an account for? That's a, that's a heavy task. That's a heavy responsibility. 
Church membership. We know the number that, we, that is in our flock. That's what church membership is. So that's why we make church, church membership such a big deal. That's why we make church discipline such a big deal. We need a clearly defined line of who is inside the church body and who is outside the church body. So, same as baptism. If you claim to be a believer, but you refuse to join a local church, you are living in disobedience. Sure, there's, there's, uh, there's circumstances, and you may be searching for a local church in which you could join, but if you refuse, that's why I use that word, if you refuse to submit yourself to a local church, you're living in disobedience to God's command and his plan for you as a Christian. Listen to how John Stott explains what Jesus does with those who are added to the number in the church in Jerusalem. He says, He did not add them to the church without saving them. It's no nominal Christianity. Nor did he save them without adding them to the church. No solitary Christianity. Salvation and church membership belong together. They still do. So God did not save you to live your life as a lone wolf Christian, right? You won't find that example anywhere in the New Testament. He saved you to a people. If he called you to himself, he called you to his body. The Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. It's meant to be lived in community. So if you're not a member in good standing of a local church, we would love to talk to you more about what that means, how you could pursue membership here or maybe at a like-minded church close to where you live. So belief, baptism, church membership. What did these believing, baptized church members do? Acts 2.42. Look at that with me. They devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. They committed themselves together. They covenanted together and devoted themselves to the Lord and to his church. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to talk about all the responsibilities of covenant church membership. But this is the picture of the New Testament church. To summarize all we've talked about so far, here's how our statement of faith defines a gospel church. It says, We believe that a visible church of Christ is a congregation of baptized believers associated by covenant in the faith and fellowship in the gospel, observing the ordinances of Christ, governed by his laws, and exercising the gifts, rights, and privileges invested in them by his word, and that his only scriptural officers are elders and deacons. So that was, that was big theological jargon. Here's how I would put a definition simply to you. I'm going to say it twice in case you want to write it down. Here's a definition of a church for our purposes this morning. A church is a community of spirit-empowered, baptized believers who are covenanted together and who regularly gather for the right preaching of the word and the right administration of the ordinances. A church is a community of spirit-empowered, baptized believers who are covenanted together and who regularly gather for the right preaching of the word and the right administration of the ordinances. So that's the setting. A local church devoted together. Devoted to what? Let's continue in Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What was the apostles' teaching? That's our second S. Scripture. Scripture. They were devoted to Scripture, the Word of God. Now, obviously, at this point in history, the New Testament had not been written yet, but this includes both Old and New Testaments, right? The apostles taught authoritatively from the Old Testament, and their teachings are recorded for us and passed down to us through the New Testament. The church is built upon Scripture. It's built upon the Word of God. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So this is the first mark of a spirit-empowered New Testament church. We submit ourselves to the authority of God's word. That's what scripture is. It's the spirit-breathed word of God comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
And so just because we're spirit-empowered doesn't mean, okay, we have the spirit, but now we don't need the scripture, right? Those two things are not opposed to one another. They go together, right? The spirit empowered and um, inspired the scripture, and he illuminates the scripture to us as we read it and as we study it, right? The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Spirit of God leads the people of God to submit to the word of God. We also don't believe that just because we have the Spirit in Scripture that we don't need the church or we don't need teachers, right? The the believers in Jerusalem devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Is that just descriptive or prescriptive? That's prescriptive. Prescriptive. Their devotion to Scripture and the teaching of Scripture is all over the New Testament. Just a couple examples, right? Jesus tells Peter, feed my sheep. Paul tells Timothy, preach the word. Paul tells Titus, Teach what accords with sound doctrine. So we believe in the inspiration, the inerrancy, and the sufficiency of Scripture. We confess with the Reformers, sola scriptura, Scripture alone. Scripture alone is the sole authority, the supreme authority in all spiritual matters. So when we're building the church, right, what are the instructions? The Scriptures. We follow the Scriptures. We obey God's commands. We follow his blueprint for the church. He's given us everything we need. He's told us what he wants the church to be and what he wants the church to do. But like we talked about earlier, if we're honest, even though we might say we believe the scriptures are sufficient for the church, we often act as though they're not. We come up with new ways to do church based upon what we want or what we think others want or what we think will work best. Listen now, one author put it, says, we pursue what we want, then we make sure there are no biblical commands we are violating. In essence, we want to know what God will tolerate rather than what he desires. God's told us what he desires for his church, right? So if we ask if we should do something as a church, we look for a positive biblical command or a positive biblical scripture. God says, this is how I want to be worshiped. This is how I want my church to operate. This is how I want my church to grow. As we said, he doesn't need our help, right? He doesn't need our help. He's given us simple commands. He's empowered us with the Holy Spirit. Let's not overcomplicate this. It's it's been said, I love the way that, that this is put. The people of God, equipped with the word of God, empowered by the spirit of God, is sufficient to do the work of God. If you look through that description of the early church, Acts 42, Acts 2, 42 through 47, Notice what is visibly absent. Much of the stuff that we fill our churches with, right? Stuff that we think is absolutely necessary. God doesn't need any of that. He's given us what we need. So let's devote ourselves to the scripture, to reading, to studying, to memorizing, to discussing, to hearing, to preaching, to proclaiming. Let's build our lives and let's build this church on the word of God together. All right. Our third S is sharing. Sharing. Acts 2.42. Let's keep going. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. The fellowship. So that word translated fellowship in your English Bibles is the Greek word koinonia. Everyone say that with me. Koinonia. Koinonia. So that's an important word in the New Testament. And that, that word means fellowship or it means participation or it means sharing. They were devoted to the fellowship, to the community, to participating together, to the sharing of Christ and of their lives together. In his commentary on this passage, John Stott helpfully explains it this way. He says, Koinonia bears witness to the common life of the church in two senses. First, it expresses what we share in together. This is God himself, for our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, 3. And there is fellowship of the Holy Spirit, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Thus, koinonia is a Trinitarian experience. It's our common share in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But secondly, koinonia also expresses what we share out together, what we give as well as what we receive. So, because of our fellowship with God, we have fellowship with believers. Because of our vertical relationship with our Father, we automatically, 
right? We didn't, we didn't choose it, but we automatically have brothers and sisters in horizontal relationships. We are a family. We are one body bound in Christ. This is the gospel. This is, this is Ephesians chapter 2. We, who were once enemies of God, have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, we, even if we were natural-born enemies here on earth, physically speaking, we have been brought near to one another. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Amen. Amen. That's the spiritual reality we're living in. That's the fellowship we share. So let me ask the question about that passage. Who set up that dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile? Who set it up? God set it up, right? He gave his law to distinguish Israel from the rest of the nations. That was a wall, a wall, a distinguishing wall between Jew and Gentile. And that passage says, through the gospel, that wall has been torn down. That wall has been torn down. You'll notice in the, in the book of Acts in Jerusalem, right, they didn't plant a Jewish church and then a Gentile church, right? That would have been a lot easier. It didn't take long, if you keep reading the book of Acts, for ethnic tension to build. Already in Acts chapter 6, right, the Hellenistic Greek-speaking widows were being overlooked, that was an ethnic divide that threatened to destroy the unity of the church. And you keep reading. Acts 15. What do we do about circumcision? Another ethnic divide that threatened to destroy the unity of the church. But they didn't divide because the gospel is stronger than those divisions. The gospel has torn those divisions down. They didn't split the Jewish church on one side of town and the Gentile church on the other. They were united in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me ask the question in another way. If through the gospel, a dividing wall that God himself set up is torn down, how much more are dividing walls that God did not set up? Right? Just think about our culture. Black and white. Rich and poor. Male and female. Young and old. That dividing wall of hostility is torn down by the gospel. Right? The gospel is the only answer to racism and to classism and to sexism and to ageism. Local churches are supernatural communities, supernatural fellowships. And the church should display those sorts of relationships that make no sense to the world. We have koinonia with each other through our koinonia in Jesus Christ. Our fellowship, our community is not based upon our skin color or our background or our common interests, but what? Through the gospel, right? You have, you have way more in common with believers who look differently, who speak differently, who think differently, who act differently from you than you do with unbelieving members of your own family, your own blood who look just like you, have the same background experience as you. That's the spiritual reality. In the classic book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, Our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. That's what our community is based on, right? That's what our unity in the body of Christ is built upon. The gospel, nothing else. Nothing else can be added to make that bond stronger either. Not our, not our tastes, not our preferences, not our common shared life experiences, nothing. Bonhoeffer writes, the more genuine and deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede. The more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ in his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. Amen, right? We seek that sort of community. Bonhoeffer then goes on to give a sharp rebuke and a stern warning. So this is, this is kind of lengthy, but I think it's worth reading. So, so listen carefully. He says that truth, that, that Jesus Christ is the, the one and only thing that unites us, 
dismisses once and for all every clamorous desire for something more. One who wants more than what Christ has established does not want Christian brotherhood. He's looking for some extraordinary social experience which he has not found elsewhere. He is bringing muddled and impure desires into the Christian brotherhood. Just at the point, Christian brotherhood is threatened most often at the very start by the greatest danger of all, the danger of being poisoned at its root. Do you hear what he's saying here? Let me put it this way in words we've already used in this sermon. If a person is not satisfied with the God-ordered simplicity of a spirit-empowered church community, they are a poison to the fellowship. A poison to the fellowship. Bonhoeffer continues with this warning, but before we hear those words, I want, us to, I want to ask us to do something, right? When we hear warnings and sharp rebukes like this, it is really tempting to assume that doesn't apply to me, right? I'm really glad this person's here because they need to hear that. Let's not do that. Let's humble ourselves, search our own hearts, and see if there's any way that this rebuke applies to us. So, Everyone do that real quick? Are you ready? Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community, as if his dream binds men together. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. So he becomes first an accuser of his brethren, then an accuser of God, and finally the despairing accuser of himself. May that not be so of us. God, may that not be so of me. May we never love our idea of the Christian community more than the Christian community that God has created and placed us in. Bonhoeffer concludes, because God has already laid the only foundation of our fellowship, because God has bound us together in one body with other Christians in Jesus Christ long before we entered into common life with them, we enter common life not as demanders, but as thankful recipients. Amen. Amen. So if you realize, hey, that, that, That kind of described me. There's grace. There's grace. Repent and look to Jesus. Give thanks for the grace that you have been given and then show that grace to others. We've been brought into a supernatural, spirit-empowered community by the finished work of Jesus Christ. We covenant together with our brothers and our sisters and we devote ourselves to the fellowship, to the koinonia. That's the spiritual reality. And then that plays itself practically in Acts chapter 2, verse 46. So skip down to verse 46 and look at that with me. It says, And day by day, attending the temple together and making bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So let's ask the question, are we supposed to meet every day as opposed to once a week? Are we supposed to go to the temple? How do we even do that? It's been destroyed since AD 70. Are we required to eat meals in each other's homes every single day? I think you can see that these descriptions, uh, it's, it's just that, a description, right? These are not prescriptions for every church to follow exactly the same way for all time, right? But we can still learn from this example of the church in Jerusalem, and uh, we can search the scriptures to see what is commanded and what is clearly patterned for us by other New Testament churches. I'll give you two that are, that are clear, a clear command and pattern, and then we'll talk about a third way that we can follow this together. First, the church must gather together. The church must gather together. The Greek word uh, that's translated as church in your, in your Bibles is the Greek word ekklesia, ekklesia, which literally means assembly, assembly. So the church is 
a gathering. The church is an assembly. So this church, the church in Jerusalem, was so large, 3,000 people, it met in the temple in an area called Solomon's Portico, which was a five-football-field-long structure on the east side of the temple. We see that in Acts 5, verse 12, and they were all together in Solomon's Portico. So, no, we don't have to gather in the temple, but we are commanded to gather together. Hebrews 10, 25 tells us that, right? Don't forsake the assembly, as is the habit of some. That's the first command. We must gather together. Second, the regular and consistent pattern of Scripture is for churches to gather together on the first day of the week. Why? Why not Saturday, the, the Sabbath day? Because Christ rose from the dead on the first day of the week. And so we see that clearly patterned in Scripture. We see that in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. And we see that on 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. The whole church gathers together on the first day of the week. And because of that, that became known as the Lord's Day, as we see in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. So the church must gather. The church gathers on the Lord's Day. And in the third way, so this is not a command, but a, an example I think we can learn from. We see that, so the people gathered all together in one place for corporate worship, and then they scattered to each other's homes to share all of life together. So this is the model that we are following for our community groups, right? We're not saying you must be a part of a community group or else you're in disobedience, right? We're not saying that. But we do believe it's a good example to follow and that it'll be beneficial to you individually. It'll be beneficial to us as a church body, right? We see in this, in this, by this example the church in Jerusalem was not a Sunday-only church, right? I come in, I receive spiritual information, receive a spiritual experience, I check out, no one knows me, I don't do life with anybody, right? That's not the pattern we see in Scripture. They lived their lives together. They broke bread together. They shared meals together. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. That's a beautiful picture, right? The church members shared their lives together. That's koinonia, sharing. That's the consistent pattern of the New Testament church, sharing life together, building those relationships with one another. Not just people just like you, right? In your same life stage with your same experiences. No, it's that supernatural gospel community, right? The gospel empowers us to build those relationships with others. And so that's why we're really excited about these community groups. Uh, we think it's a great place for those kind of relationships to be built across generations, across cultures. And as we share meals together, we're going to share our lives together. And we're going to pray for one another. And we're going to discuss what God is doing in our lives and encourage one another and bear each other's burdens and hold each other accountable and all, all these things that we're commanded to do in the scriptures. So whether or not you participate in community groups, you are called to participate in one another's lives, Right? There's so many one another's in Scripture. I'm sure you can think of 15 right off the top of your head. We are commanded to, to participate in one another's lives, to have that sort of biblical koinonia. Fourth S, we're going to go quickly through the rest of these, is sacraments. Sacraments. So we believe there are two sacraments or ordinances of a New Testament church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, right? We saw baptism in verse 41. We see Lord's Supper in verse 42, where it says they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. So are these just descriptions or are they prescriptions? Prescriptions, right? We're commanded by Jesus to baptize new believers and to take the Lord's Supper as a church. These were ordained, the ordinances, by Christ. We follow the tradition of the Reformers, right, who taught that a true church was one with the right preaching of the word and the right practice of the sacraments. And by sacraments, they did not mean the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church, they rejected that sacerdotalism, right, who taught that those sacraments had power in and of themselves to confer grace upon the recipients. No, the Reformers taught that as we receive the signs and seals of the new covenant by faith, baptism and Lord's Supper, that they are a means of grace to us, just as the word when being proclaimed is a means of grace when received by faith. Here's how our church statement of faith defines baptism and the Lord's Supper. It says, we believe that the Christian baptism is the immersion of water of a believer into the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit to show forth in a solemn and beautiful emblem our faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior with its effect in our death to sin and our resurrection to a new life. That it, baptism is a prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and to the Lord's Supper in which members of our church and churches of like faith and practice by the sacred use of bread and wine, 
are to commemorate together the dying love of Christ, preceded always by solemn self-examination. We're going to get a chance to partake uh, in this meal together in just a little bit, uh, but I want you to notice something, uh, the breaking of bread, right? That appears two times in this passage, the breaking of bread. So once in verse 42 and once in verse 46. In the Greek, right, this phrase can mean either the Lord's Supper or it can mean just a normal meal. So how do we know the difference? Context. First, I want you to notice the definite article in verse 42, the breaking of bread. So this suggests a reference to the Lord's Supper, though it was probably taken in the context of a larger meal. In verse 46, no definite article, and the church is not all gathered together, right? This is when they're scattered in different homes, living life together throughout the week. So fast forward to 1 Corinthians 11. We, we see this explained really well. So go ahead and keep your thumb here in Acts 2 and turn over to 1 Corinthians we're going to be looking at several verses in chapters 10 and 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11. So in, in this passage, Paul rebukes the Corinthians for taking the Lord's Supper without waiting for the whole body to be gathered. Specifically, the rich were gathering to eat and to drink, and they were calling it the Lord's Supper, and they weren't waiting for the poor. Paul said, this is not the Lord's Supper you are taking. You're eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. And then further, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 through 17. Look at that with me. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. He says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So I taught you a Greek word earlier that appears here. That word participation, what word do you think that is in Greek? Koinonia, koinonia. So participation, koinonia. We share in Christ and we share in one another. So there's a sense, according to this passage, in which participating in the Lord's Supper is what makes us one body. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. And so this is a a covenant meal that we share together as a church. And so we should only partake of it when we are gathered together. The Lord's Supper is not for you to take it home by yourself or with your family or even watching on the live stream. It's not for weddings. It's not for small groups. It's for when the church is gathered together. That's what Paul's getting at in 1 Corinthians. That's what we see in Acts chapter 2. It's a meal to be observed and celebrated as we're gathered together as one body in fellowship with one another. And this is really serious. Paul gives a warning at the end of 1 Corinthians 11. Look at verse 27, 1 Corinthians 11. Verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. There's consequences. Verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. And so the the rebuke comes because they weren't waiting for one another. They weren't waiting until they were gathered together. So he gives this instruction, verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. And so it wouldn't make sense that they, they're, they're partaking of the Lord's Supper in the homes in Acts 2, right? It makes sense that they, they do that when they gather together. They take, take the Lord's Supper, and then when they're gathering in homes, they're eating meals together, sharing in fellowship meals. So as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes, examine yourself. Examine your relationships in the body. Are you in fellowship, in koinonia, with your brothers and with your sisters? 1 John 4.20 says this, If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So examine yourself. Don't eat and drink judgment upon yourself. Fifth S. I'm going to go quickly. Supplication. Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to prayer, uh, to the teaching of the apostles, to the fellowship, and to the prayers, right? This is a prescription, not just a description. This corporate prayer, where it's commanded all over Scripture, and there's a clear, consistent pattern 
in Scripture, right? Ephesians 6, 17 through 18 says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, doing what? Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And then if you read through the book of Acts, we see that pattern over and over and over again. Corporate prayer is mentioned no less than 21 times in the book of Acts. We saw in chapter 1, the New Testament church was born out of a prayer gathering. We see in Acts chapter 2, they devoted themselves to the prayer. In Acts chapter 4, after Peter and John are arrested, the believers gathered together to pray for boldness. And it says the Holy Spirit shook the ground that they were at and filled them all with with the Holy Spirit and with boldness. They continue to proclaim the gospel with boldness. And so may it be so in our church. Let us be devoted to prayer. Let us realize we're insufficient for this task, but we serve a God who has all power and all authority. Amen? We can't do it on our own. So let's stop depending upon our own strength and start depending on his. One author put this very bluntly. He said, if prayer isn't vital for your church, then your church isn't vital. If you can accomplish your church's mission without daily passionate prayer, then your mission is insufficient and your church is irrelevant. So brothers and sisters, let's be devoted together in our prayer. We spend a good portion of time in our Sunday morning gatherings in corporate prayer. That's intentional. Don't check out during that time participate. There may be one person who's praying, but he's leading us in a corporate prayer to the true and living God. We have the ear of the God who sits on his throne, who's working all things together. Participate. Say amen. Agree. May it be so. We have prayer gatherings once a month that all we do is pray for God to work in our church and in our community and around the world. In our community groups, we're going to make prayer, intentional, intercessory prayer, a big part of those community groups. And so take advantage to pray with your brothers and sisters in Christ. The sixth S, the sixth S is signs. Signs. Look at Acts 2.43. Acts 2.43. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All right, signs and wonders. Descriptive or prescriptive? Descriptive. Descriptive. So miraculous signs and wonders are not commanded for churches today, and we don't see a regular and consistent pattern throughout the New Testament. Here's what we do see as a pattern. When the gospel first goes to a new area, in the book of Acts, it's almost always accompanied by miraculous signs. Why? The same reason that Jesus performed signs and wonders to authenticate the message, to prove that it was true. But if you continue reading in Acts and the story revisits those same areas, we don't see signs and wonders recorded. Why? Because the church has been established already. So it seems once a church is established in Acts, the focus then becomes the further preaching of the gospel and the strengthening of that church. That becomes the command and the consistent pattern for the rest of the New Testament. Right, 1 Corinthians 1, 22-23. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Okay, so as to just descriptive, is there anything that we can put in practice today? Are there supernatural signs that authenticate our message? Yes. You ready? John chapter 13, verse 34-35. through Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you do what? Love one another just as I have loved you. You are also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so the supernatural sign that authenticates our message is love. That proves that we are disciples of Christ, our love for one another, our Koinonia, that's supernatural. Yishal Dever and Dunlop explain Acts 2.43 in their book, Compelling Community. It says, These miraculous signs were a temporary means of confirming the truth of the gospel. Temporary, that is, until the permanent miraculous means of confirmation was up and running, the local church. When the gospel first enters a region, the Spirit enables miraculous signs. Once the gospel has taken root, the Spirit enables miraculous community. 
This is John 13.35 in practice. Evangelism that's empowered by gospel-confirming community. Our seventh S is sacrifice. Sacrifice. Acts 2, 44 through 45. Look at that with me. Acts chapter 2, verses 44 through 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So again, ask the question, descriptive or prescriptive? Is every spirit-filled believer in community supposed to follow this example, literally sell everything they have and give it to the church? There are some who try to make this passage prescribe a form of Christian communism. But it becomes pretty clear as you keep reading in the book of Acts, this is just descriptive. It didn't even last forever in the, the church in Jerusalem, right? The sharing of property and possessions here was, was voluntary. It was voluntary. We find that out in Acts chapter 5, right? Remember Ananias and Sapphira? They sold property and they said, this is all of it, but they kept some back for themselves. What was the sin there? Was it greed and materialism or was it lying to the Holy Spirit? It was lying. It was lying, right? Peter says to them, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it then that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. So his sin was deceit, lying to the Holy Spirit. So nowhere in the New Testament does Jesus or his apostles forbid Christians from owning private property. So we don't have to do that. We're not commanded to sell everything we have and give it to the church. But what can we learn from this example? Right? There are things we are commanded to do. We're commanded to not be greedy. We're commanded to not be materialists. We're commanded to be generous, to be sacrificial givers, to give with a cheerful heart, to share what we have with others, to care for the poor and the orphan and the widow. Right? We're to be good stewards, understanding that all that we have was given to us. Right? It's not ours. It's, it's God's. And so we don't need to hold on to it. We need to use it for his kingdom. We have to learn to prefer one another. To obey Philippians 2, verses 3 through 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So as spirit-filled believers, we sacrifice our wants, we sacrifice our preferences, we sacrifice our desires, we sacrifice our resources for the good and benefit of others. And then our eighth and final S is salvation. Salvation. Look at Acts 2, 47. It says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Here we see the result of a simple, spirit-empowered church. When we trust God to work through the simple setting of the local church, through simple means that he has provided, scripture, sharing, sacraments, supplication, signs, and sacrifice, he will do the work of salvation. When the people of God are faithful, God will bring the growth, right? We don't have the power to save. God has the power to save. It's the Lord who saves. Salvation is of the Lord. We can't manipulate it. We can't fast track it. God alone can change sinful hearts and give faith and repentance to believe. So it's our job to proclaim faithfully the message of salvation, that same message we started with that Peter proclaimed, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, just like the first believers in Jerusalem, are to be his witnesses, not just occasionally, but day by day. We who have been forgiven of our sins and empowered by the Holy Spirit are to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Our task is not yet done. When it is, Christ will return and we will share an eternal koinonia with him and all his people forever and ever. We now have a chance to partake of the Lord's Supper, which is a foretaste of this heavenly feast. Jesus instituted this in Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 29. He says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So in the Lord's Supper, we are looking back to what Christ has done for us on the cross. 
We look up to where Christ is seated in the heavens as we commune with him spiritually through this meal. We look around to the body that he has bought with his own blood, and we look forward to what Christ will do when he returns, when we drink and eat with him in his Father's kingdom. As we talked about earlier, this meal is open to everyone who has repented of their sins and believed in Christ for salvation, who has followed Christ's command to be baptized as a believer, and who is a member in good standing of a local church that, that preaches the true gospel. As we said, the Lord's, the Lord's Supper is a serious matter. And so let's take a moment now of solemn self-examination. Let's repent of our sins and turn to Christ for forgiveness.